work is important. Yes, we want to impact the world. We want to make money and provide for our families. But also, I think the pandemic and you know, books like mine really push you to say, like, what's the life that you're living? Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? It's episode 104. This week, we're going to address a very important question. Is a four-day work week possible in the manufacturing industry? Our guest is Joe Sanok, a podcaster, consultant, and author of the book Thursday is the New Friday. You know, I first came across Joe's book at a podcasting conference in 2021, but it wasn't until about six months after that that I was like, you know, I would love to ask him how everything he teaches could apply to the manufacturing industry. Turns out, Joe is a Michigan guy, so manufacturing has been in his backyard his whole life. Now that you have a bit of background, here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, we'll get a quick history lesson. We'll hear about Joe's background and where the concept of the five-day work week first originated. Second, Joe will share what it takes to make the four-day work week a reality. We'll talk specifically about manufacturers as well as general practices for taking a step back and slowing down in order to get more done. Finally, we'll hear about the things Joe learned while writing the book and his candid perspectives on the trajectory of our relationship with work, life, time, etc. If you want to access any of the resources we mentioned in this episode, and there are a lot, you can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 104 for episode 104. And if you want to get to the book directly, just go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Thursday. It'll take you straight to where you can grab a copy of Joe's book. And with that, let's jump into the episode. It's time to head to the shores of Western Michigan to meet up with Joe Sanek. Joe, it's great to have you here. Been excited for this interview for a while. And as we start off any episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour, I have to ask you, if we were having this conversation in person, is there a bar, brewery, a particular setting where we'd be doing it? Paint the picture for us. Yeah, so it would be at my friend Pete's Bar here in Traverse City, Michigan. It's called the Workshop Brewing Company. And uh, it's right across the street from the water. So we'd have a great view outside on the patio of, you know, West Bay. Uh, People would be kite surfing and paddle boarding and playing volleyball across the street. And I would be drinking the 20-pound sledge, which is a double IPA that is just served in this little snifter glass. And uh, it's just like a great place that that he, he... what I like about it is he pays his uh, employees year round. And so even in the slow months, like he's just like a good guy. And so to support his brewery and hang out there, uh, it would just be a beautiful setting. And, and we'd probably run into a bunch of people that I know too. Love that. And I, I'm somewhat familiar with Western Michigan breweries, but I haven't heard of the 20 pound sledge before. This sounds like an IPA I need to add to my list. Oh yeah. Well, and you know, they only can locally, they really haven't pushed it out that far. Um, and so you have to make a pilgrimage up to Traverse City to, to really get it, you know, right there. So um, tons of people come. It's usually very busy in the summer and it's just a nice place, the workshop brewing company. 
I was going to say, you don't have to twist my arm too much for that. Traverse City is certainly a destination, especially up here in the upper Midwest. But uh, let's say we're hanging out there and we're watching the kite surfers. We're drinking our IPAs. And someone asks you, it's like, hey, Joe, I've heard I've heard you've written this book. Thursday is the new Friday. You know, how do you describe that to someone as if you're having an IPA with them at a bar? Yeah, I would just start with the simplest kind of form of it. It's how to move towards the four day work week. And at its most simple, that's what it's all about. Uh, and then we dig into why it's better from a psychological standpoint, what the history of the 40-hour work week is and how it's a relatively new approach to doing business. And that there's actually better ways to be more creative and to get more done. And it involves working less. I love it. And we're going to get into some of those details as we get into the interview. But first, Joe, I want to get to hear your story a little bit because we've already covered it. You're a Michigan guy. And this is a bit of a unique podcast, right? We have a very manufacturing-specific audience. And I think when a lot of people think manufacturing in the U.S., Michigan's one of the first places that comes to mind, right? So, you know, what was your relationship with the manufacturing industry growing up or something you observed early about people working in that industry? Yeah, so uh, both my parents are from the Detroit area. Uh, My dad's father worked for Chrysler on the lines, uh, had also a small family store that, you know, he'd come home from working from 5 a.m. till 5 p.m. And then he'd come work the family store six days a week. And uh, my other grandfather, uh, he was one of the head engineers for Ford. And whenever there'd be a new build, a new um, like company headquarters or something like that, uh, they'd, they'd move to New York or Denver or different places. And he'd be in charge of kind of that whole oversight of, of the build. And so my mom moved, I think, like 17 times before she was 17. Um, my dad just kind of stayed in southeast Michigan. Um, so I always kind of knew about manufacturing and kind of knew about the really tough schedules both my grandfathers had. Um, and then we, we moved to, to Traverse City when I was younger. And so kind of knew that. But then it was more of a we'd go down uh, to D- Detroit for Thanksgiving or Christmas and and then lived in Kalamazoo for a while. So a lot of medical supplies there. That's where Stryker, you know, was a lot of kind of food and agriculture. So that side of uh, that as well. And and I feel like you kind of took a 180 with your career, right? You started in counseling and therapy and here you are now. You're a podcaster. You know, was 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 it manufacturing that made you go route or was it an inclination towards <laughs> those fields kind of growing up that, uh, that you're like, you know what, this is the path for me? Yeah, you know, I mean, my dad got his doctorate in psychology. So that was always something that uh, was at least on my radar. He was a school psychologist, so very rigid schedule. You can't just tell the schools I'm not coming in. Um, so I saw the work he did and really appreciated that. And also my mom's a nurse practitioner. And so she was in healthcare. And so both of those were kind of narratives that I heard that if you go to school, if you work hard, someone will hire you. And that's something that's very common for baby boomers that, you know, they, they were taught that if you work hard and stick with a job, you'll get a pension. Uh, And then, you know, I really realized that wasn't for me. And so I did get my uh, double masters in counseling and psychology and I kind of followed that traditional route of nonprofits, community mental health. Um, I ended up working at the community college and really just on the side started the side gig counseling practice really for the intent to pay off student loan debt. And then I had interns that said, hey, can we work for you? So I had to learn how to add a 1099 contractor. And then I outgrew the office. And next thing you know, my side gig counseling practice is bringing in more money than my full time job. And 
So in, in 2016, uh, right after my uh, daughter was born, took the full Family Medical Leave Act to just see, could this work? Um, and had been podcasting about it that whole time. So in 2012, I started a podcast called Practice of the Practice, exploring the business side of kind of counseling practices because there, there were no resources out at that time about that. And so saw between the podcast and my kind of consulting on the side and then my counseling practice, I was doing well. And so left that full-time job eventually and, um, you know, continue to build things that help therapists and coaches and, you know, entrepreneurs uh, since then. So I guess a bit of a personal question then, because a great entrepreneurial story there starts with a side hustle, moves to the full-time gig. You know, was there any point you know, I guess, when did you start thinking about, hey, is is the five-day work week what I'm meant to do this whole time, even if I'm doing my thing? When did you really start thinking about, hey, how do we optimize our time, work in sprints, all of that? Was there an inflection point, or was it just kind of a gradual realization? Yeah, I don't think that I realized how much I've lived this uh, until I started writing the book. Um, I remember my freshman orientation at college. You know, I go to Western Michigan University, they get, you know, 10 of us together and they say, we're going to make your schedules. And I raised my hand. I said, well, do I have to take classes on Friday? And they're like, no, it's college. Do whatever you want. And so I packed all my classes in Monday through Thursday for my whole undergrad, except for one semester. I had to have a Friday morning class. And so now kind of looking back is being known more as the four day work week kind of guy like that. It really was something that I challenged even within systems. I challenged the norm. So my first job out of grad school, um, I negotiated that uh, I would work a four day work week. I still had to do 40 hours, um, but they were paying me to drive an hour and a half each way through Michigan's Upper Peninsula. So that saved them a whole day of driving and gas as well. Um, they could pack in more clients, you know, per trip. Uh, and so for them, they saw it as actually making them money by being more efficient with those four days. And, and so anywhere I worked, when I really look back at it, I was really pushing back on whatever the norm was to make it more Joe Sanok friendly and to be more of what I wanted that job to be. Um, but then really I'd say that first summer after leaving my full-time job, when I have my own practice, I have my own everything, you know, I said, you know, why don't we do an experiment? Uh, you know, I'll just take Fridays off this summer, just kind of see uh, how things go, look at the numbers at the end of the summer, and then I can always go back to working five days a week. You know, it's not going to break the bank to try that for one summer. And, you know, that summer, June of 2016, was the best financial summer we had ever had or month we had ever had. July was better than that. August was better than that. And so then I said, well, why would I keep, why would I go back to working Fridays if I'm doing great without it? And there's a number of things that we can talk about in the science and the research of why we actually do better when we give ourselves less time. Um, but I was more efficient. I was focusing on those things that I knew would move the needle forward instead of getting sucked into the wormhole of, you know, YouTube or whatever wormholes people get sucked into in their businesses. I knew I had to work as, as much as I could and really have my clear KPIs, my clear goals be met during those four days so that I could genuinely slow down for the three days that I was taking off. Yeah, and I think one of the big takeaways I got from that answer right there is that you actually put this into practice, right? You tried it out, you took the Fridays off, and you saw the results. You saw that they were better. And and you mentioned there's a lot of ways we could talk about that in more detail. I am going to ask you about that in a second, but I think we want to maybe dive into like a little history of the five-day work week first, particularly because I think it's really relevant to this audience because your book, 
uh, Thursday is the new Friday, kicks off with the first sentence being, it's like, hey, the four, the five-day work week was a concept created by Henry Ford. Um, but I know it didn't really start there. There, you know, there was stuff leading up to it. Can you give us like the Cliff Notes version of the history of the five yeah. day work week? You know, when I jumped into writing this book, one question that I started with is uh, I wanted to have new eyes entering into it because you know you put together this proposal and you, you know Harper Collins bought it, but then to say how how do I make this fresh for myself? And really said, I want to know the history of time, not just the five-day work week. And, and so the Cliff Notes version is the Babylonians made up the seven-day week. You know, everything in nature pretty much lines up except for a seven-day week. A year makes sense. A day makes sense. Uh, even, you know, the months loosely connect to the lunar cycle. But a seven-day week, we just as easily could have had a five-day week and had 73 weeks. So th- the only reason was the Babylonians had bad astronomy. They saw seven major things in the sky. So they said seven days for a week. Um, And then, you know, I mean, the Romans had a 10-day week. The Egyptians had an eight-day week. Even as recent as the 1800s, the Russians tried out a five-day week. And so we think of this thing as a seven-day week as something that's solid. And so if that's not even solid, then let's move forward a bit. In the the 1800s, the average person was working 10 to 14 hours a day, six to seven days a week. They had a farmer's schedule, whether or not they were farmers. They were working all the time. And so in 1886, uh, we see in Haymarket, which is in Chicago, it's a square area. There were all these immigrants from Europe who had come to Chicago to help rebuild Chicago and thinking a better life. But their life wasn't better. It was worse. So there were all these protests. Um, there's still questions as to who threw this bomb. Some say it was the police. Some say it was anarchists. Some say it was, you know, socialists. Like there's still not an authoritative account of it. But what ends up happening is these people were protesting, wanting a 40-hour work week. They wanted to have better living conditions. Um, It's kind of one of the roots of a lot of the union movements. Um, So then we see 40 years later to the day, to May Day, that's where we got May Day, Henry Ford announces the 40-hour work week. So very strategic that he announces it 40 years after this huge national lockdown against the 40-hour work week, he then says, no, we're going to do this. But Henry Ford did it because he wanted to sell more cars to his own people. He said, they're not going to get a car to get to work faster, but if they have a weekend, they're going to want to get out of town. They're going to want to see Ohio, Indiana, Northern Michigan, because they could do that. But if they don't have a car, you know, they're just going to you know, sit around town. And so we see that initially it's just to sell more cars to his own employees. So less than 100 years ago, we get the 40-hour work week. And then we see that even throughout time, you know, the 80s and 90s, the research points to that Fridays were already starting to fade out. We see the rise of casual Fridays. We see things like TGIF with, you know, Urkel and Full House. That TGIF becomes a big thing. Fridays are for team building activities with the office and mission and vision days. It's not a fully worked day. Uh, I like to joke uh, that, you know, Friday has been having an affair with the weekend for a long time. So let's just call it what it is. Like, it's no longer married to the work week. So let's just call it what it is. And then the pandemic really was that final linchpin in the 40-hour work week. The people saw that, you know, outside of a lot of um, professions that they could get as much done outside uh, of just being in the office, having sitting in a chair or or sitting in a manufacturing place, being your key performance indicator that 40 hours is what we judge people on. No, let's look at output. Let's look at what this role is giving us. We really see that the reshaping of how we do schedules has completely changed post uh, 2020's pandemic. 
Friday has been having an affair with the weekend for a long time is one of the best ways I've ever heard that described. Um, I, I have to ask you, that was a great synopsis of, you know, what, you know, the five day work week, where we are now, where we were when it started. What happens when you're having this conversation with people, though, that might not have read their book that aren't already making this mental shift when you're like, hey, weeks are arbitrary and it's possible to work like four days a week. How do what is what is the general reaction to that? Like in a conversation with, you know, an average person at a bar, for example. Yeah, I would say the first reaction is that sounds awesome. I'm in like, (laughs) where can I get the book? Like, let's do it. But then, you know, when people really start to think about it, they start to poke holes in it. And I think that's where the societal conversation and the research we see coming out of Iceland studies or, you know, Great Britain's doing a massive study right now or Spain or, you know, know, we look at other places uh, that are larger businesses doing it where it's like, well, how does this work for an hourly employee? How does this work for, you know, manufacturers where, there's a clear output per hour that's very clear. We don't necessarily need in certain segments extra creativity. Maybe we want it at the C-suite level or, you know, kind of, but the actual producing of goods oftentimes is very linear. And so so that's where the practical application side, I think, becomes uh, a lot more interesting, but then also part of that conversation uh, of say, well, what does that mean? Because say if we just take hourly employees, it then begs the question of why did we pick 40 hours to be the standard for how much they, they make? You know, why is that the standard? Um, should people be able to live on something less than 40 hours? Well, that's a, that's a values discussion that I can't make for all of society. That's a discussion that thought leaders and politicians and, you know, people that are pushing for worker rights, like that needs to be part of a public discourse that hopefully is moving away from just hey, 40 hours is what we default to, to sure, that that may be the option that works best for a company, works best for its workers. They may decide that a 40 hour, five day a week, that works best for them. It shouldn't be the default though, is my argument. And so that's where, when we start to talk about it more to say, how would that look? Like say we just said 40 hours is no longer the default. How do we look at hourly employees? How do we look at manufacturing? You know, Saturn, I, I went and visited the Saturn plant with some friends in college. It was a rainy day down by Nashville. And we went to the Saturn, the Saturn plant and just thought, well, that seems like a random weird thing to do. And and the way that they had people work was they were working these 10-hour shifts. Um, and it was a 10-hour shift. And then they had four hours that just the plant was done. So they worked. The plant was going 20 hours a day. And then they only worked four days. And then they had three full days off. And so they were working 40 hours. And they found that they were getting more done than when they had done the kind of traditional manufacturing. So mm-hmm. there are ways, even in manufacturing, to think differently about it or to test new things or to do A-B tests that may work for, for workers to feel happier, to feel more content, to have more time with their families, and to get the same or better output. I like that Saturn example. I'm probably going to ask you a little bit about that again here in a bit, but I want to get into kind of maybe some of the how-tos around the book, right? And there's a lot of detail in there. I, I'm very confident we're not going to get to it all today. You're, you talk about having time for curiosity, being able to separate yourself and take an outsider perspective to the work you're doing and question, hey, we've always done it this way. Maybe there's another way to do it. But and tell me if I'm wrong. I felt one of the central themes of the book was being able to slow down and take a step back in order to speed up, right? And, you know, if there are gaps to fill in there, I guess my question is, what's the first step for someone to kind of take that opportunity to slow down in order to speed up and be more effective in the hours that they're working? Yeah, so I would say it's it's a kind of three-step process that the book walks through. So first, we have our own internal inclinations. So knowing 
what are you inclined to in what you're talking about, the creativity, outsider perspective, and ability to move on it, to not overthink things? And so like we have a assessment over at internaltest.com that your audience can take for free. It's usually 50 bucks, and I can give you that code um, to figure out just where are you at. It's not pass-fail. It's just one of these things that uh, we want to know where you're at. So once you know where you're at, the next step is slowing down. And most people for example, their weekend, is in reaction to the week before. So I had a busy week, I'm just going to crash, I'm going to watch some Mandalorian or you know, go out drinking with my buddies or just sleep in or whatever it is that you do. It's in reaction to a tough week instead of our weekends being in preparation for the next week. And so when we have that preparation mindset where I'm going to slow down so that I can have the best creativity, that then unlocks the brain differently. So just recently, like I actually just last week, I ran Slowdown School, which is this event where top entrepreneurs fly into northern Michigan for a week. We hang out on the beaches of northern Michigan. We watch the sunsets. We go for hikes. I had a massage therapist come. And then for in the middle, for two and a half days, we run full tilt towards their business. I got all these testimonials from people saying, I got more done in two days than I would have got done in years. Or I got more done in two days than I would have got done in months. Because... Their brain was clean. It was clear. Things they thought were important that they'd come into the event to work on, they realized, whoa, I'm playing way too small. I need to look at the things that are above that. What's the big umbrella that kind of oversees my whole business? And so to have that clarity through slowing down, then when you do go sprint and you do use these psychological exercises to get more done, you're doing the right things instead of just kind of putting out fires and just keeping up with all the tasks that are coming to you. I love that you brought up slowdown school because something you mentioned in the book that you didn't mention in that answer that is a favorite pastime of mine is skipping rocks into Great Lakes, which I believe you do there as well. Because I think I've probably skipped 100 rocks into Lake Superior in like a le- like less than 30 minute period before. So um, that, that, that whole event sounds fantastic that you described. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did, we had some, uh, rock skipping contests and I, I wish, I mean, I live on Lake Michigan. I should be better at skipping stones. I should have dominated these people, but I did not. (laughs) I get some practice down on my side of the shore in Milwaukee. So if I ever make it over there for that beer, I will take you up on that, uh, that competition. (laughs) Sounds great. So, you know, I, I want to get some perspective, like, like I want to get prescriptive here as well for the manufacturers. So we've talked a little bit, bit about the, you know, the first step you can take, you know, the slowdown school that you do as well. You know, how can manufacturers start to fit four days of work into a five day work week? Maybe, you know, you, you talked about that Saturn example. What are the things you're seeing particular to that industry and the people you work with? Yeah, when I do consulting with people that are in the manufacturing industry or when I kind of work with people that have a more traditional industrialist way of setting up their businesses, is to first look at the different roles. You know, so like a mid-manager is going to have a much different role than someone that's frontline, you know, doing manufacturing versus, you know, C-suite people. And so really looking at those individual roles, um, I think then looking at what are the things that we're already measuring people on? You know, is it productivity? Is it KPIs? How for mid-managers? Like, what does that look like? Um, and then the next kind of question to think about is how are we with staffing? You know, right now, you know, at the time of this recording, it's very hard to find high quality staff. So the more that companies can differentiate themselves, the more they're going to attract higher quality staff. So imagine that in any role, you know, you can get paid the same amount for working a four day work week as a five day. 
are the high quality staff going to move over to a four day work week or are they going to keep working a five day work week? Like you're going to attract top talent. So what would happen if maybe your business had a 25% brain jump in the business because of just switching to the four day work week in some way and then being able to have a lot of people be attracted to you that are high quality staff. Like what would that even mean for your business? So I would start with some of those kind of high level types of things and then we can get into the practical. And so I wrote a Harvard Business Review article about how to implement the four day work week, um, how to test it. So the first concept that's different than maybe what the industrialist taught us, the industrialist taught us you set it up, you have your assembly line and you forget it. You know, it just kind of keeps going, just maintains it. Whereas the new way of thinking really is we want to plan, do, check, adjust. The whole lean manufacturing, you know, that, that we're iterating, we're changing, we're adapting. And so you want to do that when you're looking at implementing the four-day work week. So you want to have smaller teams, typically six to eight people, that have a similar role. So these could be mid-managers. They could be people in the marketing department. They could be C-suite people. And for those folks to then brainstorm what are the one or two KPIs that we're already judged on? So we just have a baseline of what does this look like? Uh, so is it sales? Is it output? Wh what does that look like? Then doing a one quarter experiment. Of course, you're working with your supervisor to make sure that they're in the know as well. Then you set up also a culture for that team for this experiment. So does that mean that we're taking Fridays off? Does that mean that we're going to take Wednesday afternoons and Thursday afternoons off? Does that mean that we're going to just, you know, come in a little bit later, leave a little earlier? Are we cramming everything into four days and doing 10 hour days, four days in a row? Like, What is this experiment and what is the culture that we can all have in regards to our boundaries? Because the worst thing that could happen is someone starts sending emails at 10 o'clock at night on a Wednesday. Half the team checks it. The other half doesn't. They feel like they're going to get fired because they don't know. You want to set a culture so everyone's on the same page. So then on the first day of the week, which for most people would be Monday, you're going to have a standing meeting where you just look at those KPIs. How did that look last week? Was it up? Was it down? And then how did we do with our culture? So, you know, did we send emails after we said we weren't going to? You know, did somebody, you know, break the rules? What do we, what do we need to do here? Because it could be, hey, you know, we have, you know, a Great Britain office and they send an email every Wednesday night and we need to be ready for that Thursday morning. So now we have to change our culture to check your email at 11 p.m. every Wednesday. Okay, we have to adapt then. Or is it someone was out of line and we need to say, hey, you're going back to your bad old habits. Let's change that. So then you look at that and then you say, okay, if we're up with our KPI, what are we going to sustain? What's the one or two things that we're going to sustain? And if we're down, what are we going to do to address that this week? And so then at the end of every month, you're going to do the same thing, but you're going to reflect back on the previous four weeks of, of notes. And we're not talking massive notes. We're talking a couple lines. We were up this much. We were down this much. So that you then have a report to give to your supervisor to say, here's where we're at in month one of the first quarter of this experiment. You do that for all three months, and then you do a mega report of that quarter with then reflecting on what do we think works that could be applied across other departments similar to ours? What do we think that works that may be applicable to maybe the whole company? And then what didn't work? What did we learn here that, hey, you know, we were down 5%. That's real money that we lost for the company in this experiment. Um, or we're up 10%. Why do we think that was? Um, so you're really analyzing the data as you go, um, knowing that you're committing at least to a quarter of it. You have the support of those supervisors, but that you're also then finding ways to improve the overall system moving forward. That might have been one of the most effective, really quick 
yet really specific how-tos we've ever gotten on this show before. So for anyone listening out there that wants to give this a shot, you just got your uh, quick guide on how to make that possible. You know, Joe, you work with a number of different people doing different work in different industries. Are, are you seeing people start to put what you just described into practice in the manufacturing industry more and more? Yeah, I think a number of industries are seeing that this isn't just applicable to startups or to more knowledge-based economies. Uh, I mean, you look at Shopify, uh, you know, they're switching to a four-day work week. Uh, we see that the Iceland study that came out in 2021, where they had over 3,000 people that worked a 32-hour work week. So it wasn't a 40-hour work week crammed into four days. It was a 32-hour work week, four days across industries. So we're talking bus drivers, we're talking babysitters, we're talking teachers, all sorts of people that were doing this. And they found that basically the last eight hours were just volunteer work, that it didn't actually move the, the needle forward. And if anything, it decreased health outcomes, it decreased happiness, it decreased work satisfaction to work those extra eight hours. So we're seeing that there's practical real life money that's attached to people working beyond that 32 hours. And so yeah, I think when, when people hear that data, it's no longer just this one KPI of the output of whatever manufacturing. It's okay, our healthcare costs could go down. We look at Kalamazoo Valley Community College, very traditional college. Um, they switched to a four-day work week in the summers, all because this HVAC guy realized they could save millions of dollars if they turned off the AC on Thursday nights instead of on Friday nights. Uh, they've saved millions of dollars. The board approved it, and their healthcare costs have gone down. The um, worker satisfaction and retention has gone up, um, and the student success at Kalamazoo Valley Community College has gone up. And, and so there's all these other factors that weren't even KPIs. The original thing was we can save millions on air conditioning costs. But then all these other ancillary things are part of the equation now to say, hey, it costs a lot to replace somebody. You know, it's a good six to 12 months till they're up at the speed of the person that just left. So if we can have somebody stay an extra year or two years, that's a financial benefit to the company. So there's all these other factors that people are now taking into account rather than just the basic output that maybe they used to think about. Well, Joe, in not only in that answer, but earlier, I think you mentioned a silver bullet for our listener base because, you know, I, I don't think you knew this when you brought it up. But the n number one issue we talk about on this show is workforce and how do we train the next generation? How do we get talent? How do we retain talent? And what you mentioned of, hey, imagine if you're competing for talent against a bunch of five-day workweek companies and you're the four-day workweek company in the manufacturing space. And, you know, we talk about automation and, you know, repurposing jobs and people having higher level jobs now. Like there's a lot of other factors that go into that on that show. But I think you nailed it for, uh, for our audience talking about those areas and the other benefits they can get by, by going beyond that. You know, as as we get into the the final part of our conversation, I want to ask you a little little bit about the book as well. When you were writing and researching for your book, was there anything that surprised you? Like anything you learned along the way that that surprised you? You know, it was it was more just like interesting things. You know, I read through a bunch of declassified CIA papers and just to see because I was learning more about sensory deprivation and how to get in flow state and all these things that they were testing and just to see the weird, cool things that they were looking into. I mean, that, that was interesting to me. But I think the thing that really stood out in the writing of the book and what I learned was as I learned some of these hacks in regards to how to be more creative and more efficient with your time, I was able to directly apply them while I was writing the book. 
And so, for example, there, there's one thing um, in the psychological research of using your environment to train your brain to do different tasks. So, for example, you know, when I do a podcast, I almost always wear this white polka dot shirt. So it's all white, has little black polka dots on it. Um, this is my like media shirt. Um, I always do my standing desk. I have an environment for podcasting so my brain can go into flow state faster. When I was writing the book, I have a chair that's in my office that I would move to a different part of the office. I actually brought in a different light. Um, I had headphones that I only wore while I was writing the book and had a playlist I only listened to while I was writing the book. And so I trained my brain to drop into flow state quicker by just changing the environment. And so to even just say, okay, this is my podcasting environment. That's my writing environment. If I'm going to brainstorm on my whiteboards, you know, what's that music sound like? What's that lighting look like? So that I can teach my brain to say, okay, we're about to brainstorm. Let's go. Um, and so being able to apply those kinds of things that I was learning directly to the book made it that I could write this book in five and a half months. I mean, to write a whole book in a chapter a week to just be diving in. Um, a lot of people will say, oh, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. I freaking loved it. It was yeah. awesome. I got to find crazy research and cool stories and, you know, kind of pepper them in and say, where's this fit? And uh, it was amazing. Uh, and so I think that it made me have joy in a task that oftentimes people don't have joy in uh, because I was applying the very things I was learning about how the brain works in regards to slowing down and then killing it. On the flip side of that, has anything surprised you in people's response to the book or something you've learned from your readers now that the book's been out for a while? You know, no one's asked me that question. So let me think through that. I think Probably the biggest surprise is how universal it feels like slowing down actually helps people kill it. You know, it's like, you know, you can read research, you can apply it to your own life, but there's always that kind of part of the back of your head saying like, is this just kind of unique to me or, you know, unique to just podcasters that are in charge of their own schedule or is this actually applicable, you know, across the board? Like I think it is. Yeah. Um, and really seeing that as people slow down, a lot of times what happens is way more personal than business, that they realize wow, I'm going at a pace that I don't want to keep going at. I'm not spending time with my family doing things that I want to do. I have toxic friends in my life that I don't want in my life. I want to edit out these people. Uh, I want to, you know, add in fun activities. You know, like I started doing improv a few years ago. So every Wednesday I go to improv. It's it's a non-negotiable in my life. It brings me so much joy. And, and so people are finding that, Yes, work is important. Yes, we want to impact the world. We want to make money and provide for our families. But also, I think the pandemic and you know, books like mine really push you to say, like, what's the life that you're living? Are you living the life that you want? And that structure, that five-day work week or seven days, like, if all that was made up, like, is the life that I think I have to live, is that really the thing that I have to keep living? You know, I think you mentioned it briefly in your book, but now that you just reminded me of it, I have to ask you an improv question. How has participating in improv helped you in your work or your life in general? Yeah. So I start I started with improv purely for my own joy. Like it wasn't to uh, jump into, you know, business aspects of things. And the improv group really is just improv. But with that said, it has been so helpful to be able to just think on my feet. So I was doing a keynote um, over this past um, winter and the mic system for a good five or 10 minutes wasn't working. And so I just jumped off the stage and went into the crowd and started talking loud enough that everyone could hear me. Uh, started just bantering with people around the topic that I was doing my keynote on. And what happened was by the time I gave my keynote, 
they were just, they loved it because I had just bantered with them. I had chatted with them. They were laughing. They were, you know, joking around. And I wasn't just this guy on a stage. I, I was a guy that had come down and just chatted with them while they were having mic issues and didn't get all bent out of shape. And so I think that whether it's that or on a podcast or even just joking around with my daughters, uh, I'm a single dad. And, you know, to just be able to just have fun with them and realize that, yeah, being a dad's really hard and it doesn't always have to feel heavy. It can be really light and it can be fun. And that's part of being a parent also. So I think it all just like informs just a lightness in life and even just saying yes to, to things that maybe I would have said no to. Excellent answer. I also realized as I was asking that question, I was absolutely falling into the trap of my own industrialist mindset, looking for some utility in every activity someone <laughs> uh, does just for fun. So a- anyone that knows me knows that's uh, that's a, a, a characteristic about me. But uh, nevertheless, I, I digress on that. You know, we're, we're here very close to the end of the interview. I, I have a couple more questions for you. And, and, and here's a big one. Just in general, one thing you discuss in your book towards the beginning is that generally generationally our relationship with time off seems to be improving right with each generation there's more flexibility tgif comes in all of that so just overall do you feel we're on the right track moving whether it's going from a five-day work week to a four-day work week that our relationship with time and work is getting better overall I do. If you just look back generationally, you know, sometimes when you just look at the last five or 10 years, it's hard to really see that. But if you look at macro wise, so if we've got, you know, my generation, then we've got, you know, baby boomers, then we've got the World War II generation, then like our great grandparents, just look at the shift from that. The great grandparents were working 10 to 14 hours a day, six to seven days a week. You know, the uh, the World War II generation was really the first adult generation that started to see the 40-hour work week come into focus. So think about just that dynamic between the great-grandparents and the World War II generation. You lazy 40-hour-a-week people, like you think you, you get weekends <laughs> and you, I mean, and then you move into kind of baby boomers. They're, they're only the second 40-hour-a-week generation. And, and so... Their grandparents were like, back when I was a kid, I had to work the farm 14 hours a day. And then you look at, you know, Generation X and millennials, and now we're working less and less and have a lot more freedom and have used technology to make that we don't have to work 40 hours. So we're dealing with the same dynamic that the World War II generation had with their parents, where you lazy millennials and, you know, Xers, you you aren't working as much. It was so hard when we had a 40-hour work week. But look at what's happening. We see more people putting time into self-development, looking at trauma or counseling or our own baggage. I would hope that people are also, you know, evaluating their impact on society, their own creativity, their own innovation. You know, when I think about whether it's global warming or I look at, you know, other things like pandemics coming back and, you know, you know political strife, I mean, racial strife, like, do we want a burned out generation that's working 40 to 50 hours a week? Or do we want a generation that has time to step back and reflect and be considerate of their answers and to be thoughtful on how they respond to people instead of reactive? Like, do we need a more creative and innovative generation to handle these massive things that are ahead of us? Or do we need a burned out generation that's working 50 plus hours a week sometimes? So that's where, to me, it really gets personal, where if we as a humanity are going to move forward and we're going to address issues and we're going to try to not put our own baggage onto other people, if we're less burned out, 
we then can enter into those kind of conversations with more respect, with more thoughtfulness, with an ability to hear other people that are different from us and to debate through those things in a way that's healthy. To me, that's how humanity moves forward and working less is part of that equation. I love that. I appreciate you taking us outside of the four walls, the factory a lot today and getting us to think about, you know, life beyond work as well and how that all ultimately factors into how effective we are, how energized we are to really take on the real problems at our job and our lives or in the world. So, Joe, it's been excellent chatting with you today. Is there anything you wish I would have asked you that I haven't yet during this conversation. Hmm. I think if we're thinking bar talk, it would be uh, a follow up to what have I said yes to that I would have said no to. Uh, And the answer to that is uh, my neighbor asked if I wanted to go to a Guns N' Roses concert and that was never on my radar. And I ended up taking my father to see Guns N' Roses eighth row and Slash was like right there. Uh, And it was one of the best nights with my father of my life. And it was because I said yes to a situation that maybe in the past I would have said no to. That is fantastic. Actually, I uh, I tweeted something about your book yesterday where you made a comment. It's completely irrelevant from the main topic of your book, but it's like, hey, if you missed out on punk rock, skateboarding, and like concert festivals, well, you missed that era in time, and I'm a big rock and roll guy. Hopefully, by the time this episode comes out, I'll be going to see Motley Crue and Def Leppard for their uh, nice. stadium tour this summer. So, always appreciate you bringing in some rock and roll here at the end of an interview. <laughs> so, as we wrap up, what is the best way to connect with you and find you after this interview is over? Yeah, so that uh, assessment that I'm giving your audience for free, I'd say that's a great action item for them to really figure out their internal inclinations. So usually I think it's 59 or $49, but if they use code TITNF for Thursday is the new Friday uh, as their code, that fee will be waived. So they can take that. It'll take them 10 minutes or so, and they'll know kind of where they fall with the three internal inclinations. Uh, JoeSanok.com is where I have all the information on consulting. Uh, And then my podcast is Practice of the Practice. Uh, Practice of the Practice.com is where I mostly am. I'm on Instagram and all over the place too. So people can just reach out to me on any of those platforms. And for everyone listening, I will have links to all of those over in the show notes at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And with that, Joe, thanks so much for jumping on today's show. Hey, hey, thanks for listening, and a big thanks to Joe for jumping on today's show. If you want to check out his book, Thursday is the New Friday, just head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Thursday, where you can pick up a copy for yourself today, or I'll have links to that as well as everything else we mentioned at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 104. That's the show notes page for episode 104. You'll get links to Joe's website, that assessment he mentioned, his podcast, as well as the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan. Before we wrap up, I do want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, the Association for Advancing Automation, A3. By the way, if you're listening to this episode in August 2020, or I should say if you're listening to this before October 10th, 2022, well, you should meet us in Boston, Massachusetts for their 2022 Autonomous Mobile Robots and Logistics Conference, as well as the Vision Show. They're doing both of these conferences in conjunction. It's essentially, you know, a week-long event, a week-long party, whatever you want to call it, a week-long opportunity to learn in Boston, Massachusetts. If you want to attend, go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Boston 2022. You can learn more. You can register for the event while you're there. Register for whatever event is the right size for you, and we hope to see you there. 
Again, that's taking place October 10th through 13th, 2022. You can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Boston 2022. And of course, if you're listening to this after those dates, you can always learn what events A3 is hosting by going to their website at automate.org. And with that, that's a wrap on this week. Hopefully, you're getting to start your weekend a little early. Hint, hint, depending on whenever you listen to this. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.